Yes. Y'all come on in. If you need a lesson, raise your hand. You've got the lessons in front of you. You've heard from Howard. Church history literacy today is March the 17th. Okay, well, not really. But today is August the 4th, and for purposes of church history literacy, we're studying St. Patrick's, so I hope you have your green on. Look around you. If they don't have green on, pinch them. Don't pinch Constable Hickman. He can arrest you for assault. But outside of that, uh, 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 pinch him. Um, I got on the Internet. And, and it's kind of exciting. I mean, we all, everybody's heard of St. Patrick's Day. Everybody knows about St. Patrick's Day. But not a lot of us know a lot about St. Patrick. Um, uh, it's uh, St. Patrick. We're actually at, at the place in church history where St. Patrick comes in. And so we're going to cover St. Patrick today. Um, uh, we will uh, do so. And uh, uh, my applause to anybody wearing green. Uh, if you're not, Dr. Bob has on green, I'd warned him ahead of time. He never told his wife, Kelly. I asked him why. He said he wanted to pinch her and not get in trouble. Um, so however it works for any of you, uh, welcome to class. I got on the internet and I wanted to get some good pictures of St. Patrick so that I could, I could put them up here in my PowerPoint. So I typed in in Google, uh, St. Patrick, and then I hit the images so that I could pull up some good images. And I found one, but <clears throat> I'm frankly not convinced that's what he looked like. And so I quickly nixed that, and I went back, and I pulled up the next image I could. That doesn't have anything to do with St. Patrick either. I don't know why that's become St. Patrick's Day, so I nixed that. The closest I could come was this. And while this isn't quite the get-up-and-garb of a 4th, 100s, 5th century bishop, it comes close. So this is uh, uh, what we're going to use today for St. Patrick. And uh, let's uh, get into it a little bit. We need to put this within a historical flow. And in this regard, uh, we spent a lot of time in the 300s. And in the 300s, the Roman world kind of looked like this. We had all of this that's sort of a red color. That was the Roman Empire built around the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, we don't have Justin Harless here today, do we? No. Okay, well, I frequently will throw in some Latin because he studies Latin. Anybody else study Latin? My grandmother can say the first sentence of Caesar's Gallic Wars, but that's from like 60 years ago, so I don't press her for more details. Anybody else? Okay, well, Mediterranean, of course, uh, terra means earth, meta means middle, and uh, nea is the Latin word for sea. Mediterranean sea literally meant the sea in the middle of the earth because for the Roman Empire, you see, that was the sea in the middle of the Roman Empire. So we've got the Roman Empire. The Germanic people are up here um, uh, uh, in the purple. Over here are some Persian people over in the kind of... Uh, uh, greenish, yellowish color. Um, if you look up here at, at Great Britain, you'll see that most of what we consider England and on up into some of Scotland was actually controlled by the Roman Empire. But that area that's white means that those were just nomadic and uh, uh, non-cultured people who, who were not part of the Roman Empire itself. This is what the Roman world looked like around 300 A.D., it was united under Constantine. We spent a lot of time talking about it. 
But a lot of changes happened over the next 150 years. We're going to be covering some of those changes. I'll give you a snapshot of where we're going so you can decide whether or not you want to show up. Um, we're going to be talking about Jerome, who is another pillar of, of the church, uh, translated scriptures into Latin. We'll be talking, he was a friend of Augustine's or Augustine. Uh, uh, we will be dealing with Jerome. We'll be dealing with a fellow named John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom wrote the most comprehensive set of, of uh, commentaries on scripture in the early church. But we're also going to be dealing with what happened with the fall of the Roman Empire. Because as the Roman Empire started disintegrating and we move into the Middle Ages, uh, there are profound changes for the church and there are profound changes within Christianity itself. And so we will go into some depth on uh, uh, this and we'll look at the fall of the Roman Empire and the start of the Middle Ages as we come up. Once we hit the five and six hundreds, of course, the six hundreds, we've got the rise of Islam. And uh, uh, I've been emailed in class about what I cover some of those issues. And we certainly will when Islam arises uh, 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 and the Muslim conquering starts happening. And then we've got the Crusades. We've got all sorts of things coming up that really have significance for our world today. Uh, what we're going to see as, as the Roman Empire dissolves is a division between the eastern half of the Roman Empire, which actually continues for another thousand years, and the western half, which becomes modern Europe. And we'll see some of the fights among the peoples that, that brought out modern Europe. So this is where we are. Right now, we need to know that um, up here in England... Uh, during the 400s, so ignore my 300, but in the late 300s actually, and in the 400s, you've got people attacking uh, 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 the Roman Britain. You've got people coming over from Ireland, people coming down from Scotland, and people coming over from Germany that are all attacking the Roman Britain. Uh, uh, it's, it's pretty bad. In the late 300s, there's a good stand by a, a, a general, a Roman general, Theodosius, who later becomes an emperor. But uh, uh, basically, uh, eventually, you're going to see the Roman troops pull out of Britain as they try and shrink back. Rome is tremendously overextended. They don't have the army. They don't have the resources. They don't have the communication. And you can take a huge world empire, but if you overextend its army... Uh, uh, it can face troubles not only far afield but at home. So Rome starts to kind of shrink and pull its armies back. Not only does it have problems up in Roman Britain, but the Germanic people start coming in. And, and, and it's not all a huge, uh, uh, gee, you wake up one day and there's an onslaught. What happens in the Roman Empire is along the borders... Uh, there are actually Christian missionaries who are out with their Germanic people and are converting them. So a lot of these invading forces uh, uh, arguably are Christian forces. In addition to that, if you've got a border town and you, you, you may be part of the Roman Empire and you may be paying your taxes to Rome and you may be honoring the emperor and, and everything, but right across the river or right down the street, well, not down the street, but, but you know, on the other side of the forest are barbarians or pagans, as we might call them, they've been converted, some of them, by the missionaries. Isn't it natural that there's going to be some trading going on? And that was being done as well. So it wasn't hard for these Germanic people to go ahead and decide, hey, we're going to go ahead and just take over some of these places, and they proceed to do so. Uh, not only do they do that, but in 410, 
Alaric and the Goths come actually down into Italy and sack Rome itself. And this was a huge issue for Augustine that we discussed last week. Uh, uh, He writes a book about the city of God where he compares Rome. Now, Rome has been around for 1,100 years at this point. No one ever dreamed that Rome could be sacked like this. But, But Rome, he compares the city of man to the city of God and the idea that we have... A, a city or we are part of God's kingdom which can never be sacked. And he compares the difference between our eternal kingdom with a, a temporary kingdom because all kingdoms of men come and go. And so it's an interesting book. Now, I want to take the focus a little bit further into Britain. I've taken a map here that's got Ireland, it's got Scotland up here, and has got most of Britain down here. Um, this is where the attacks were coming from Ireland where basically raiding uh, bands of marauders would come over and they would grab uh, uh, Roman Christians uh, in Britain and, and other Romans in Britain and they would take them back as slaves. And it was a terrible place to be. Uh, they would also come over from Germany, mainland Europe, and come down from Scotland. Now, into all of this comes St. Patrick. And so if we throw him back up there, what we know about St. Patrick... And what I've taken today for our lessons basically come from three different sources. The first source are his confessions. That's actually a bad typo, and I've done the same typo in your handout. I apologize. It's singular. Augustine wrote multiple confessions, but uh, Patrick called his just confession uh, 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 in a singular sense. But his Latin was so sorry, he may have thought it was plural. We'll get to that later. Um, in addition to his confession, which he wrote late in his life, he wrote a letter to a uh, kind of a general or a lead pirate or whatever you want to call him, a marauder named Caroticus. And uh, we have that letter as well. Almost every scholar who studies St. Patrick agrees both of those are original authentic writings of Patrick himself. There is another thing called the Fiat Fiata, and I, I don't pronounce... Uh, that language very well, so I've got the translation up there, Deer's Cry. And uh, uh, this is another writing which a lot of scholars, most scholars, assume and believe to be authentic with Patrick. If not, it's pretty close, and so we have looked at that as well. So using these sources of what Patrick had written, um, we, I have put together for you this morning a brief summary of St. Patrick so that next March 17th on St. Patrick's Day, you can pull it out, you can read it, and you will be able to broach the subject of Christianity to anybody wearing green. Um, go back to our map. Here's Britain. Here's the marauding Irish and the, the Picts from up where Scotland is and, and the Celts and, and everyone who's just basically closing in. The Roman troops by, by uh, this time in the 400s have been pulled out of, uh, of uh, uh, Britain. And so while Britain's still kind of Roman, uh, it's, it's certainly not very safe and not very secure. And here is where... Patrick is born. He's born, our best scholars estimate, by the Clyde River, at the mouth of the Clyde River, which is in northwestern Britain, where it goes out onto the sea. It was a very logical place for these seafaring people to come and to cause lots of problems. Um, uh, I tried to grab a picture of the Clyde River, 
uh, uh, courtesy of Scotty Ladd on supranet.com. Um, since Steve has done such a wonderful job posting all of these things on the uh, internet website, which he'll be ready to kick off in a week or two, I thought I'd better like cite where I got the picture from. Uh, uh, specifically because this picture was one they said, use it if you want, but tell everybody where you got it. So you've now been told. Um, that is uh, the area uh, uh, where uh, most scholars believe Patrick was born. Um, he was born of a wealthy family. His father was a deacon. His grandfather was a priest. And, and uh, uh, his family had a lot of slaves. They had land. They had houses. And uh, uh, he's born into a wealthy family. Uh, it is a Christian family, we believe. Uh, we don't have any reason not to believe that, uh, his father being a deacon and his uh, grandfather being a priest. However, Patrick, as a lad, uh, was not so Christian. In fact, he says in his confession, he didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in any of that mess uh, from the time he could remember up through the time he lived there at home, uh, uh, which was when he was about 16 years old. Patrick would later write the following, that he had turned away from God and kept not his commandments. He was not obedient to the priests who would admonish them about their salvation. Uh, uh, I don't know uh, how many of you were Christians growing up, um, uh, but I assume that we've got a good bit of people in here that by the age of 16 still did not know who God was and had not committed their lives to Him. Um, I don't mean to embarrass you. This shouldn't be an embarrassing question. Show of hands. How many people at the age of 16 had not yet known God? Okay, a good bit of people. I'd say over half. Well, you, you and St. Patrick, you know what it's like. You've got other things going on in your life. You've got other things going on in the world. And, and so you've got videotapes of things you did, as Patrick did, before he became a Christian. At the age of 16, something really weird happened for him. One of these marauding tribes came over to his area of Britain and uh, conquered it. Uh, conquered it. That's not the right word. They didn't set up shop. They basically went over and stole all the crops and stole all of the food and stole everything they could, including a bunch of men, women, and children. And they took Patrick back and they sold him into slavery in Ireland at the age of 16. Ripped him from his home, ripped him from his mom and dad. He's a pagan. He doesn't believe in God. And they take him to uh, Ireland where he's sold into slavery. And Patrick becomes a shepherd. Now, a shepherd has a wonderful sound for us, especially when we put it up with such a pretty picture. But a shepherd's life was a very hard life, especially when you were a slave as a shepherd. You were not uh, really given a place to stay. You were expected to stay with uh, your flock, uh, which uh, during the harsh Irish winters could really be tough. Uh, uh, it was a very hard life. Uh, it was a very tough life. And as a 16-year-old kid, you know, I look at our, our children and, and we've got three of them that are 16 or above, three out of five. Um, and I'm here to tell you, uh, you know, I don't know. I look at my kids and I think, man, you know, I worry about them being able to drive at night. The idea of a 16-year-old being ripped out of his home, being sent to a country where he would never probably see his family again, totally on his own, 
has no knowledge, doesn't know anybody, doesn't have a friend, doesn't have a relative, doesn't have an American Express card, doesn't have anything that seems to give security to us, and he stuck out as a shepherd in slavery and said, told, deal with it. Well, let me tell you what this time gave him. First of all, it gave him a lot of time to think about his sin and his unbelief. I know that a lot of us would take this time to curse God and die. Okay, God, now maybe you are there, but if you are there, why on earth did this happen to me? Or reinforce our belief that there isn't a God, because if there was a God, how on earth would he allow something horrible like this to happen to me? And even if I'm a poor, wretched sinner and I don't believe in him, if he was really there, why would he let this happen to my parents? After all, they're believers, and no doubt this has ripped them asunder. Patrick's not there. Patrick starts thinking about his sin and unbelief. Here's the way he says it. There, the Lord opened the understanding of my unbelief. So that at length I might recall to mind my sins and be converted with all my heart to the Lord my God who has regarded my humility and taken pity on my youth and my ignorance and kept watch over me before I knew him and before I had discretion or or could distinguish good and evil. And he protected me as a father does his son. Now, I I paused for just a moment as I studied this and and as I was rereading the Confession of Patrick, and I thought, you know, how many times in my life has something that to my heart is not what I want, to my body is not what I want, that to my family is not what I want, how many times have I gone through a horrible wilderness, uh, terrible experience And have I seen fit in that time to honor and acknowledge God and what he's doing in my life? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But I'm here to tell you that that's what Patrick did. And God wrought in his heart something that's really, really incredible as we look about it. Now, Patrick was quick to say there were a lot of changes that happened as a result of this. Patrick says, you know, when I was 16, I got ripped out of my home and uh, uh, I never really went to school. I didn't get that good formal schooling or education. I missed out on school. I never got the, the everything learning Latin book that I should have gotten. And so he writes, my Latin stinks. He's writing in Latin. You got to figure Latin was probably his home tongue, but once he got ripped out at the age of 16 and shipped over to Ireland and sold into slavery, he's speaking a foreign tongue. He's not speaking Latin. And he never really got that educated level where his Latin was good. You try to translate a Latin scholar, you better be a scholar if you're going to try and translate Patrick's Latin because it's wretched. I mean, it's really bad. Um, uh, He ain't got no good English. And, and his Latin's even worse. Um, Patrick says that he was, quote, uneducated. He says he was untrained. He was weak in language skills. And all of that is true. But I will tell you something that does impress one when you read his confession. As uneducated as he was, as untrained as he was, as weak as he was in language skills, 
Do you know what? You can't read a paragraph of his confession without finding some scripture or scripture reference. He doesn't say, as Paul says in Romans, or as Paul says, it just comes out of him. He's speaking scripture like you'd speak a foreign language. And it's really incredible. Here's an example. I pulled this out. He just says, and he, he, this is just as you're reading along. And to Jesus, the Father gave all power above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those who are in heaven, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess to him that Jesus Christ is Lord and God in whom we believe. Where's that from? <clears throat> Anybody? Philippians 2, 5 through 9. Um, in the NIV, at least, it reads, uh, let's see, Acts and Letters of Romans. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians. Okay, I'm there. Hang on. Philippians 2, starting with verse 5. You look at the screen while I read. Paul says, uh, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, uh, who being in very nature God, bah, 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 let's scoot down. Ah, verse 9. Therefore God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's pretty close, isn't it? Bob and I got a letter the other day, real thick one, from somebody who said, we want you to take our lawsuit. I said, well, you know, we, this is what we do for a living, so we turn the page to see what the lawsuit is. This person says, Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code, stole my book. Says, here are, like, what was it, Bob, three or four, 300 sentences that I had where he took my sentences and put them into his book. Maybe just changed a little bit here or there. So I looked at it. I said, Bob, would you figure this out? I handed it to Bob. Bob came back and said, well, first thing we got to know is whether or not this person's a whack job. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, because if they're a whack job, the answer is no. And the odds are they're a whack job. And I said, well, did you look at it pretty closely? And he says, yeah, but their sentence is like, and he answered. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's not really there, is it? And he says, no. He says, and then here's another one. Um, the man turned around, looked, and saw. Bob says, you know, the odds are there are a lot of books out there that, that, that have that. And I would agree with Bob, but this one's pretty close. This isn't just a coincidence, right? Then he continues. Um, Jesus Christ is Lord and God in whom we believe, whose coming we expect will soon take place. The judge of the quick and of the dead. That's 2 Timothy 4.1 where Paul says that... Uh, Jesus is the judge of the quick and the dead, or living in the dead, is NIV translation, who will render to everyone according to his good works. That's Romans 2.6. See, this man just talks in Scripture. He's not real educated. He's not real trained. But he's digested the Scripture of the Word of God. And that Scripture's had a profound effect not only on him, but on civilization. And so uh, uh, we see that while he missed out on schooling, and he even says at an old age, even today, I'm ashamed. I greatly dread to make known my inexperience because not being learned, I can't explain it in a few words. 
looks like the way that the hand was dealt to him in life, he's not going to have the tools he needs. He's not going to have what he wishes he had. I wish I could go back and redo some of my education and learn some of the things that I figured out how to pass the tests on without learning. But I've got to accept that in spite of what I may not have and in spite of what I may not know, I'm still God's hand today. I'm still God's tool today. And so are you. And one thing we can do is start devouring Scripture and let Scripture be our language. Um, Bob has made me the butt of a number of jokes this week. It seems I've accidentally... Um, uh, I was I was I was getting a video interviewed for a, a graduate business class at Yale, and they sent this guy down, and and they're going to show it I think over two class periods, and uh, uh, he's asking me all these questions. It's just a pepper of questions, and he interviews me for an hour and a half or so, and so I'm sitting there and I'm answering them, and at one point I said uh, my answer included the following that we just need to gird up our loins and go after it. And evidently, that phrase is not really found outside the Bible. <laughs> and so Bob has proceeded all week to, whenever he sees me, say, hang on, and gird up his loins as he leaves. Um, but we need to be inundated with Scripture where it oozes out of our pores, even to the Yale Graduate School of Business, who needs to learn what it means to gird up your loins in truth and go out and fight. Um, Patrick uh, missed out on schooling, but he didn't miss out on God's plan for his life. So with prayer for Patrick, the, while he's a shepherd boy, the love of God, he says, starts growing in his heart. You know, Howard's up here every Sunday and leading us in prayer. And every night before we go to sleep, uh, uh, we get with our younger girls and occasionally our older girls, but they typically stay awake for about five or six hours after us. Um, but our younger girls still go to sleep before we do. And uh, we'll gather with them and we'll pray with them. Now, there are a lot of reasons to pray. One reason to pray is because uh, Jesus says you don't get because you don't ask. And so we pray because we need God. And a second reason to pray is because uh, Jesus told us to. I mean, that's a good enough reason right there. And another reason to pray is because when we pray, the love of God grows in our hearts. We need the love of God. We need God's love to permeate who we are. If I could change one thing about Christian perception in the world, I would make it where the world perceived that Christians are a people of love. Because that's not the way we're perceived in much of the world. We're perceived as hate mongers, if anything. We're perceived as, as uh, 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 Christians are, are politically in America, people who are uh, dead-bent and determined to force our morality on someone else, whether they want to or not, without regard to any factor of love. Or we're seen as people in the world who want to impose Western democracy on the world as we interpret it without any regard to love. And I'm not saying any of those agendas are right or wrong. I'm not passing judgment on them. But I am saying that they'll know we're Christians 
No, they'll know we're God's children by our love. And uh, uh, that's good enough reason to pray too. You need more love in your life? Everybody does. Work on your prayer life. In addition, with his prayer, his faith grew. He says, the more I would pray, the more my faith would grow. And my, my belief and my understanding in God. You got issues of faith in your life? Oh, study. Um, talk to people. Get counseling. But pray. Don't leave that out. Praying will grow you in your faith. With prayer, his spirit was stirred up. Are you down? Are you depressed? Are you, 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 you feel like life has dealt you a raw deal? You, you just don't know what's going on? Pray. Prayer changes things. But prayer also builds you up in God. Prayer, when all is said and done, prayer is time you spend with God in communication. It's time we spend with God in communication. You can't talk to God and have God talk to you. You cannot spend time with the Father Almighty without growing in His love, without growing in His faith, and without your spirit being stirred up. And that's what happened with Patrick. Patrick says it this way. He uses this picture. He says, I was like a stone that was stuck in the bottom of a big old mud pit. And God came down and pulled me up from the mud pit and he cleaned me off and he took me as a stone and he put me into this, this building that he was making in the wall and put me to work for him and he used me. Now, if God can do that with Patrick, Patrick says everyone ought to praise God in humility. Patrick says you may be the most talented, gifted guy in the world. You may have everything going for you. You may have every reason to be proud, but you should still praise God in humility because God's able to use someone like Patrick. One of my favorite things, that fellow last Sunday uh, who preached for us had the illustration or used Exodus 4. One of my favorite all-time biblical examples of this is Moses. Where God confronts Moses and says, go get my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, I can't do that. And God says, no, 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 I'm doing that with you. Moses says, well, I'm just not gifted. I just don't have what it takes. And God says, well, okay, uh, you're a little unclear on the concept. Take your stick and throw it on the ground. And Moses does. And it becomes a snake. God says, pick it up. Moses does. And God says, now, take your stick, and with your stick, I'll go uh, redeem the people from Israel, uh, from, from Pharaoh's bondage. But you'll need to come along because the stick needs transportation. You may, not have, you may not have what it takes, Moses, but the stick does when it works for me. And that's what Patrick's saying. He's saying, I'm not educated. I'm not smart. I don't have what it takes. I missed out on schooling. Life dealt me this deal. But God has used me in His life, in my life, to do some incredibly phenomenal, miraculous things. And everyone, regardless of your station in life, ought to be praising God Almighty because He can use someone as low as me. It's pretty good. So here he is. He's been a shepherd in slavery now for six years, okay? He's 22, we figure, and he's laying down sleeping. And he has a dream. 
And in his dream, he's told, about 200 miles from here is a ship. It's ready to take you home. You need to get over there. So he wakes up. And at some point in time, heads 200 miles away. That's a long walk. That's a long walk. I wonder on the way what he was thinking. But the six years that he's been gone from home, God has turned this boy around into a young man of God and of faith. He goes and he finds the ship, goes up to the captain. Of course, he doesn't exactly have a lot of money. He's a runaway slave shepherd boy at this point, young man. Says, Captain, I need a ride on your ship back to my home country, Britain. The captain just looks at him and says, Yeah, right. No way. And Patrick says, really? Because I, I had this dream and I thought that you know this was all. And it turns out the ship is set to sail for the right port the very day Patrick shows up for it. He says, you know, I showed up. It's a 200-mile walk and I've been told in a dream and, and here I am and you're sailing right now and you're sailing to the right place. This just all seems to fit. And the captain says, well, everything fits except you, and you're not on my boat. And so Patrick turns away, doesn't curse God, doesn't say, oh, great, 200 miles shot, now what I'm going to do. Instead, he turns away and he starts to go to where he can stay the night and just starts praying. And Patrick writes that before he finished his prayer, one of the shipmates comes running up to him, taps him on the arm, says, uh, time out. Uh, Captain's changed his mind. Come on. He goes and he gets on the boat and it sets sail immediately. And uh, at the age of 22, Patrick makes it home. A different man. His family, obviously, beside themselves, they say, would, would you please never leave home again? We don't ever want you to go anywhere. You stay here with us. Oh, I left out. Patrick converts the captain and the crew on the way over. Um, Patrick makes it home. And Patrick's doing real well at home. Life's very different. He came home a different man than he left home six years before. I don't know how many of you have seen. Maybe it's your own experience. But the world has ways of taking people that grow up in a Christian home, that rebel from God, and at some age in their teenage years get wrapped up in a whole other world that they should never belong in. And yet in the midst of that, God redeems them and brings them home. And it may take six years, it may take 16. Heavens, it could take 60. But it's a beautiful thing when it happens. Patrick's at home. And bless his heart, he goes to sleep and he has another dream. And in this dream, some people from Ireland have come back to him in his dream and said, would you come back over to where you've been a slave and bring us the gospel and teach us about Jesus? Well, Patrick uh, uh, doesn't do so immediately, but Patrick sets out to get some education and some, some uh, uh, training in, in the ways of God. He dedicates himself to God. And he becomes uh, 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 first a deacon. And uh, uh, this is the ordeal of becoming a bishop. You've got to understand this before we do the bishop story. As a deacon, one of the things Patrick does is he confesses his sin to a very close friend. 
And he says, when I was 15, I committed this horribly egregious sin. And I've never told anybody. But I'm telling you. His friend says, I, you, know, I you know, God forgives you for that. And, uh, he, and, and he did. And, and with that, uh, Patrick takes his vows and becomes a deacon. Okay? Becomes a priest. Um, now, another 30 years later, that happened when Patrick was 30. At this point, Patrick's probably 60, the way most people put the records together. He lives a pretty good while. He's about 60 years old, and he's going to become a bishop. And part of the search before you, be, they, you get the bishop is the committee, if you will, or whoever's going to designate you or ordain you a bishop. They kind of search out your past, and they come across this friend, and they find out about this unconfessed sin. And uh, uh, they're not going to designate or appoint or consecrate Patrick as a bishop because of this sin when he was 15. He's 60. And Patrick, in his sleep, has another dream where God says, Hey, can you believe they're doing this to us? Patrick wakes up the next morning saying, You know, I had a dream. And in my dream, and Patrick never says that this was really God. He says this may not have, this may have just been a dream, you know, it may have been a vision. He doesn't know, but he had no doubt that the message that meant to be conveyed was that when they attack Patrick for that sin, God's forgiven him. They're attacking God. When God's forgiven Patrick of that sin, and Patrick's being attacked for that sin, then it's God that's standing with Patrick, and God says, Hey, can. They're doing this to us. And so Patrick continues to endure. And uh, sure enough, he is designated a bishop. And he is sent over to Ireland at that point and is able to go to convert the people. Um, uh, I'm going to, in the interest of time, well, this is great. This is kind of the sum up of what happened with that ordeal. I constantly exalt and magnify your name wherever I may be, as I will in prosperity, as also in adversity, so that whatever befall me, good or bad, I ought to receive with equal mind and always give thanks to God who showed me that I might, to the end, put my trust in Him as unfailing. He's saying, here's the bottom line. I don't care if it turns out in the world's eyes good or bad, good or evil. I've put my trust in God, and that's it. It's going to be okay. He is unfailing. He will not fail me. And uh, with that, uh, he gets ordained as a bishop, and Bishop Patrick finally arrives back in Ireland. Um, he walks the entire country of Ireland converts and baptizes literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands. A 60-year-old man walking the entire country of Ireland, setting up churches, setting up monasteries, going to the chiefs of the clans, converting their daughters and their sons and the chiefs, converting the peoples. Now, it wasn't all easy. He gets attacked. He gets... Uh, beaten, he, uh, lots of abuse is heaped on him, but he does it, and in the process, he says the following I never accepted a gift if they offered me 
a book, I wouldn't take it. Because for him, he was proud to be poor. He says, the Lord was poor. He says, you think I'd want to ever be different than him? He says, there's great power in being poor. You don't have enough to where credit card companies will give you credit cards and you can get debt. I was at a party one time where one of my friends looked at me and he says, do you remember how great it was before we like had real jobs and we were so poor people wouldn't give us credit cards? I said, yeah, I guess. But, uh, you know, that's, he, was, he was delighted. Now, at one point he gets captured and he's trying to be released and this is where the deer's cry was written. And I've put a section of it up here for you as I have in your handout. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. And uh, uh, it's something that he, that Patrick and his followers would say daily as they were working. Let's see if we can get through it here. He says, I bind to myself today, which is his way of saying, this morning I'm awakening and this is what's going to be me today. Today, this day, I will trust the power of God to guide me. The might of God to uphold me. The wisdom of God to teach me. The eye of God to watch over me. The ear of God to hear me. The word of God to give me speech. And boy, it does. That's, I mean, he quotes the Bible right and left. The, the, the hand of God to protect me. The way of God to prevent me. The shield of God to shelter me. The host of God to defend me against the snares of demons, against the temptations of vices, against the lusts of nature, against every man who mediates or effectuates or hurts me. That's pretty good, isn't it? Not bad for a guy with no education. Now, um, also during this time period, I'm I'm remiss if I don't point out that Caroticus, that uh, marauding guy, came with all of his things and he kidnapped or captured a bunch of Christians. I'm sure this brought up some childhood issues. It's interesting for me that Patrick had been subject to being captured by a marauding tribe, and that's how Patrick came to faith. But when the marauding tribe later in his life captured a bunch of people, Patrick doesn't say, yeah, I went through that. Sorry, it's going to be hell for you, but it's going to be good for you in the end. Instead, he comes to their defense. And he writes this excoriating letter. Uh, I tried to find a picture of the marauding tribe. (laughs) best I could do was Braveheart. Um, And actually, that was supposed to happen in the 1300s, so it's anachronistic and it's not accurate. Uh, You know, they had different face color paints on Mel Gibson then and, and all. But, you know, this is what happens. And so... Uh, 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 I love this. Patrick writes this letter that basically says, Okay, Caroticus, you claim to be a Christian, but you have just captured a bunch of these people. And, and uh, basically, if you ever were a Christian, I'm announcing you're excommunicated from the church and you're going to hell unless you repent. And I'm going to have one of my trusted priests bring this letter to you and he's going to read it out loud to you in front of all of your people so they know how you're going to hell kind of a gutsy move. I think it's as gutsy for the priest who takes the letter and reads it. Um, we don't know the turnout, by the way, of that. We just have a copy of the letter. 
Um, we do not know how Patrick died, and we don't know precisely when he died. It's believed he died on March 17th, which is why we celebrate St. Patrick's Day that way. Um, but while his death is uncertain, his future uh, was never in any doubt. Um, he said the following, Without any doubt, we shall rise on that day with the brightness of the sun, that is the glory of Christ Jesus, our Redeemer, as sons of the living God and co-heirs with Christ and conformed to his future likeness. Patrick hates his language, he hates his Latin, he hates his writing, but he's wrote his confession anyway. And he says, the reason why I did it is because I wanted the history to know why, as, as my legacy, why it is God saved the Irish people and how Christianity was brought to the Irish country. And so he wrote it. Now, before we close, the folklore. Um, this uh, painting, you know how you know that's Patrick? Green and snakes, okay? Green, St. Patrick. Snakes, because supposedly he chased the snakes out of Ireland. Well, that's bogus. There's not a bit of that based in real history. After Patrick died, some seven different lives of St. Patrick were written over the next several hundred years where all sorts of bizarro things were attributed to him that don't seem to have any accuracy, including chasing the snakes out. Uh, they probably didn't ever have that many snakes in Ireland to start with. So... Um, next, do you know why the clover is associated with St. Patrick? Supposedly, Patrick used the clover to teach about the Trinity. Now, there's no doubt Patrick was big on the Trinity, but there's no reference in any way, shape, form, or fashion from anything even remotely close to him in time that says that he used the clover to teach it. Okay? So, for what it's worth. Now, points for home. And I want you to consider this. God can use a little to do a lot. How many of you have a little? Okay, everybody in here has a little. God can use a little to do a lot. If you don't have a little, if you don't have enough for God to use you to reach people or use you to minister to your family, if you don't have enough to do that, then go get a stick. And let God use the stick. We are the body of Christ. Uh, Becky and I had some guests in our home this week, and uh, uh, one of the guests uh, sang a song from a prayer of St. Teresa of Avila. It's, the, the lyric goes, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands or feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on the world. I mean, we are his hands and we are his feet. And if, if, if Christ wants to do something, we, we are his tools to do it. And we need to think of ourselves that way. Think of what you are and who you are and what you do. Now, if Bob... Bob's going to lecture me tomorrow morning about class today, and he's going to tell me that I failed to give us an action step because he's always saying on the points for home, you need an action step, something people can concrete do. So this isn't going to be adequate, and he can tell me how to fix it, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to figure out something you do with your body for Jesus. In the sense that Jesus Christ is, you are his body. 
Maybe it's um, helping someone with a chore. Husbands or wives, whoever is responsible for cleaning up the dishes today after lunch. Maybe you do it when it's not your responsibility. Maybe it's uh, 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 looking out for someone who needs help. Maybe it's instead of mowing your yard right up to that weeded edge where their yard stops. You'll go ahead and help out your neighbor a little bit. But figure out some way you can show the love of Christ with your body today. Um, Three, hardship should draw us to the Father. Hardship should draw us to the Father, not push us away. Satan will use hardship to try and push you away from the Father. Don't let that happen. Embrace God through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, as Paul would say. So with that, happy St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, um, it's uh, fascinating to look at how you've worked in history to study how you saved so many people in Ireland. And then to look today at how uh, uh, a celebration in honor of St. Patrick has turned into a day of of, uh, ungodly partying in some regards and certainly things that are far from your heart. It is my prayer that, that we will be a people of purity, that you will reach down and touch us, that we will be your body on earth that that purely reflects your glory, the works you want done, the compassion you have for the world. Would you please move your spirit in us to do that? And Father, folks in here who are going through hardship times right now, use this time, please, Lord, and draw their hearts close to you. Do not let Satan drive them away from you, Father, but reach into their lives and pull them closer to you. This is our prayer through Jesus, our Lord. Amen.